Good morning. My name is Jo. I have this morning's reading. It is from 2 Timothy 3, uh, 10 to 17. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles with you, which is not a bad thing to do, we're looking at 2 Timothy, as you may have worked out from the Bible reading. Uh, Let's pray for ourselves. Our Father, we thank you for your patience that you hold out your hands, as your word says, to a stubborn uh, and hard-hearted people. We pray that you would speak into our lives, that you would bless us by your Holy Spirit to give us humble, teachable hearts before you, that we would hear your voice through your word. Uh, We ask you to do this miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. I've got a quick quiz. Uh, Where are these words from? I'm going to leave just one word out. We present you with this. The most valuable thing that this world affords. Let me read it to you again. Where, where do these words come from? We present you with this, the most valuable thing that this world affords. It's a very big claim. Anyone know where it's from? Yes. Great, he's absolutely right. Let me just read it to you. This is part of the coronation and she's given a book. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that the world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. The most valuable thing. Abraham Lincoln, uh, another country, another century, he says this. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the saviour of the world is communicated to us through this book. Abraham Lincoln. I don't want to be too petty. I think, the, I think there is actually one gift better than the, the, the Bible itself, which he mentions, which is actually the saviour. But it's still pretty good. I believe the Bible is the best gift, or the second best gift, God has ever given to humans. All the good from the saviour of the world is communicated to us through this book. I wonder if if it would ever have crossed your mind to say that this book is the most valuable thing on the planet. 
or this is the way in which all the goodness of Jesus is communicated to us. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus had come, being who he, who he was and is, did what he did, but there was no Bible, there was no book. It's interesting to work out what, how things would have played out if we had no clear record of these things. Now, the reason why we're looking at this question of the book is because as of next week, we begin a series on the Apostles' Creed. 110 words, which the early Christians summarised the whole of the, the guts of the Christian faith. And on a day like today, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different languages, people will stand up and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and through they'll go. Because Christians throughout the ages and in many, many countries have thought this is a very helpful summary of what we believe, that it's good as a reminder to me not to forget. And it's actually good when someone comes to church thinking, what is it that Christians believe? Well, this is what Christians have from the beginning believed. Now, one of the reasons why, if you're an Anglican, um, we take the creed seriously, you may not know that the Anglican church has a thing called the 39 Articles, which you can find, uh, you used to be able to find in the back of your prayer book when you were given prayer books out, but you can find it easily on the net. The 39 Articles is a summary of what people like me when I became an I signed that I, I solemnly believe all this, uh, bishops, etc., all sorts of people. This is our basic creed. And let's, let me read you from Article 8. The Nicene Creed, and that which is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, ought thoroughly to be received and believed for, or because, for they may be proved by most certain warrants from Holy Scripture. Right. Why should we take them seriously? Because the statements in it can be proved by Holy Scripture. Presumably saying that if they couldn't be, we wouldn't get up and say them. Because the touchstone of truth is the Holy Scripture. Now, Scripture just means writings. And we're going to look at why it is that Christians believe that. Some people just think, oh, it's just a thing that evangelicals go on about. Uh, no. And so let's go back and look at this one, the, the obvious verse, in a sense, to look at that you heard read from 2 Timothy 3. It's well known, and it should be well known, but like anything that you've heard a few times, there's a very good chance we don't take it seriously, we've lost the weight of it, or perhaps never felt the weight of it. 2 Timothy 3. Well, let me read it to you, and we're going to look at um, two things, and then so what? We'll start at verse 14. But as for you... This is the sort of expression that you find in Jesus a number of times. Where he'll say, people are doing it like this in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, similar thing. But as for you, there's a contrast. And the contrast that you heard at the beginning is that there are people, teachers out there in the churches, in the world, he describes them as deceiving and being deceived. That the teacher themselves is deceived and they're involved in deceiving others. And he says, but as for you, Continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. You know from whom you learned it. And Andrew shared with us uh, a few months ago that he learned it, Timothy learned it from his mum and his grandmother is where he learnt about, G about uh, the Holy Scriptures. You know who you learned it from and how from infancy you've known the Scriptures. Boy, what a gift that is to children, right? They may fight you with getting to Sunday school or reading the Bible at home, but to be brought up from infancy knowing the Holy Scriptures is a massive blessing which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, 
all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, profitable, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, let's have a look at this, this most valuable thing in all the earth. Firstly, the Bible is wonderfully priceless. Why is it so valuable? It's so valuable because of its source. All scripture is God-breathed. In many other translations, it's understandably translated as all scripture is inspired by God, is inspired. Um, And that goes back really because the Latin translation used to use the the Latin equivalent of that. It's not the best translation because it it, it can, the, the, the translation that you have from the NIV is wonderfully accurate because the word it's translating is made of two words, God breathed. So it's not saying that this all scripture, and here quite clearly when the Apostle Paul's uses, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus referred to. It's all the stuff that came before Jesus, the scriptures, the writings, the holy writings that he's talked about. And they're not so much inspiring as they are inspired. So it's not talking about the effect the, the literature has on you. It's talking about their origins. That that's why to translate the word more literally as I have here is, is very helpful. It is God-breathed. See, at the moment you're listening to my words, like it or not, and they come out on my breath. Uh, you can speak breathing in. I tried it on Tuesday. It, it doesn't work all that well. Uh, normally you breathe out. And that's where we meet God, don't we, in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. Right? And he speaks. Uh, And so what it's saying here is God breathes out. It is the view of the apostles, and we're going to see it's wider than that, is that this book is not just a really helpful book, a really wonderful book, a book of really interesting things, and a book of really weird things sometimes, but it it wants you to know the source. Of course, the the book is very clear, the Bible is very clear that that this book has got a dual authorship. So in Acts chapter 4... Uh, Peter is talking to God, and uh, Peter and John, and he says, you know, um, oh, let me read it to you. 425, speaking to God in prayer, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So it's very clear there's a dual authorship. David is really writing, but the key thing and the starting thing and the main thing is it is the Holy Spirit who's driving it. That's why the book is of such significance. When I used to take weddings at an um, overly resourced private school in Sydney, the, um, sometimes people would say, I would like to read this poem in the wedding, because I was fairly flexible in what we did. It's almost the basic core was there. Uh, but I would always say, as nicely as I could, no to that. Even if it was one of Shakespeare's poems on love, which are really quite Christian in some of their sentiments, the answer was no. Because what we do in church when we stop and say, okay, everyone sit down, shut up and listen, is we read the book that has come from God. You can find more inspiring literature. That'll be very subjective judgment, but you won't find literature with this, the other, with the author. Um, this has always been the view that Christians have held, and I'll show you why, because it goes back to Jesus himself. So sometimes that's, that's uh, so look, I'm happy to incorporate your poem 
in my sermon, perhaps, or you could have it at the wedding reception. It doesn't have to just be only bawdy stories about the groom. You can actually have something meaningful as well at the reception. But we're not stopping because it just says the wrong thing. It would communicate. We just have great literature. This is why some, at some of these seven lessons and carols, things that they have now, they have poems. They just, no, 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 no. Go back to what Christian started. They're just seven Bible readings. The stuff that comes from the mouth and the heart of God. That's the source. Now, this view is, of course, as many of you know, it's exactly the view that Jesus had, which is why it's very, 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 very extremely difficult to seriously call yourself a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, but then to have a different view on the Old Testament, on the scriptures than Jesus did. But you'll meet people who'll do that. Jesus' view on the Old Testament is massively high. He is very clear again and again, read read through any of the Gospels and there'll be references where Jesus talks about the scriptures in, in proving things. So in John chapter 10, he says things like, the scripture cannot be broken. And he speaks about the explanation of why he had to die was because the scriptures said it. And as we've looked in other contexts, when Jesus is explaining sex and marriage and divorce, he says, have you not read what God said to you? And that he quotes what in the, in the actual book is actually an editor's comment. You know, there are parts of the Bible, 3,000 times in the Old Testament, it says, thus says the Lord. But this is a comment where God has done certain various things. And then the editor says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus says, haven't you read what God says to you and quotes the editor's comment? So as far as Jesus is concerned, what would he know about God? I, He thinks that the editor's comment in Genesis chapter 2 is God speaking directly to us. So it's a Jesus view. And when when you look at Jesus when he rises from the dead, um, Andrew and I were talking about this, uh, Andrew Lubbock and I were talking about this the other day. It's just interesting the way Jesus, what he does with scripture. When Jesus rises from the dead, so he's died, he's risen from the dead, the new age has begun, he's about to send the Holy Spirit. What does he do when he meets with the disciples? Well, whether it's the disciples he meets on the road to Emmaus or whether it's the the actual apostles, he does exactly... Listen to what Jesus uses his time doing when he's risen from the dead. Jesus says to the two guys who've just recognised who he is, verse 26, Luke 24, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus doesn't go, oh, it's the new, it's the, it's the new covenant, it's the new day. Don't get all excited about the Old Testament. Jesus says, it's the new day. It's a, you know, let me explain from the scriptures. So Jesus actually takes them through a Bible study. Later on, when he appears to the actual apostles as well, he does exactly the same thing. He speaks to them from the scriptures and explains, verse 45, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written the Messiah must suffer and die, etc., etc. So it's very important to see that not only does Jesus base, whenever he's having an argument with people, he argues from the scripture. As far as he's concerned, if the Old Testament says that God says it, uh, debate's over. But then on the other side of the resurrection, he's still saying it's about the scripture. Let me teach you from the scriptures. So this is very clearly the view of Jesus that is expressed in these verses. It's God-breathed. It's a wonderful gift. You know, so we have this thing in church, don't we, when the Bible's read, the, the Bible will normally finish by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And there's a mumble, oh, thanks, really good. 
Really? Thanks. I suppose it's pretty nice to hear the voice of God, really. Let's not get too excited. You know? I mean, there should be a sense we go, thanks be to God. Because you heard the voice of God this morning when the Bible was read. You may also hear it as a sort of re-expressed in the sermon and expressed in the songs. But when you hear the Bible pure, the word of God pure, you ought to be thankful. Right? And listen very carefully and be joyful. It's very clear to Jesus' view. In fact, there's a guy called Rudolf Bultmann who was a massive but strange scholar in the 20th century, really no great friend of Christianity. But he, he says the one thing we know for sure about Jesus, he says, he's extremely sceptical, is that he believed the Old Testament was God's word. And he doesn't think there's going to be any doubt about that. You may know better than Jesus, but if you do, don't be careful about calling yourself a Christian. Because a Christian is a disciple and apprentice of Jesus. If he doesn't know where, where the voice of his father is heard, why would we trust him on anything? Very, very quickly, the early church has a consistent and exciting view on this. Let me share with you from 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter has a number of great things which we've sadly skipped past. Let me see if I can find them. Where is the 2 Peter? Down the back here somewhere? Oh, it's after 1 Peter. Earlier on echoing exactly the same idea of the God-breathed scripture, listen to what Peter says. Above all, this is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So I don't think when you read the prophets back here, it just comes because of their religious genius. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is a nautical word. It's a word, a ship that is carried along by a, by a wind, sometimes by a storm. It's used to the Apostle Paul when he's on the Mediterranean and the boat he's in is carried along and then shipwrecked. So what he's saying is humans are moved as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, humans are speaking, but the energy and the thought process, according to 2 Peter, comes from the Holy Spirit himself. Listen to what he says in chapter three. We looked at this when we were doing Romans, so I'll be quick. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. He writes the same thing in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Most of us go, yep. Which ignorant and unstable people distort. As then, so now. People take things and distort them. But here's the key thing. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So he's talking about the scriptures, the standard New Testament. He's speaking about the Old Testament, the scriptures. But what, see what he's done? He's actually elevated Paul's writings when he says, as they do the other scriptures. He clearly, Peter clearly sees that Paul's letters are up there with Isaiah and Deuteronomy, etc. And then let's have a look at what um, Paul himself does when he quotes at one stage the scriptures. Over 300 times in his letters, he'll, he'll quote the scriptures. In this one, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, listen to what he says here. For scripture says, so he's going to quote the Old Testament, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Okay, Deuteronomy 25, I think it is. Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. 
Now, people have noted this. So as the scriptures say, okay, Deuteronomy, that makes sense. Where's this other one about the labourer deserves his wages? Luke 10 right? and Matthew 10. So it's, it's not in the Old Testament. But he says, is the scriptures saying it? So already the New, the New Testament writers, there's Jesus and then those closest to him, the apostles, have got this very clear sense that there's this other set of writings that are also scripture. It makes sense that God is, is the God who acts and then has it carefully recorded for us, as he did from the very beginning. So the early church has exactly the view of Jesus, that this is where God speaks. It's a wonderful gift, isn't it? It's a priceless gift, right? That, that God would breathe out a book for us. Safest way to secure information. Even nowadays with our whiz-bang computers, many people, if they've got a serious document they don't want to lose, let's, let's you know, control print, let's go. Let's get this onto some paper. And that's what's happening here. God has done that for us. It comes with divine authority. At times it will disagree with you. And thank God when it does. Because when the scriptures disagree with you, it means you're wrong. There's no price for being wrong. It's wonderful when someone who knows stuff corrects you. So my nephew was taken up to Ramwick Kids Hospital. They thought, the doctor, local doctor thought that he probably had a cancer on the leg. We took him up to see a specialist. They had some pictures. Back came the word, it's benign. Right? We were glad to be wrong. There were some people in the family who'd cried tears of possibility and they were glad to be wrong, to be corrected by the truth and the experts. But many of us, when it comes to God and life, we're pretty addicted to our old opinions. I mean, before I became a Christian, I was sort of half thinking about Christianity. Saturday night, Sunday night, Sydney, nothing going on back in the 1473. When I was there, we were driving around. We had a radio, though, in our car. And we were listening because we were cool to 2SM. 2SM, I guess, is the equivalent of Triple J or Triple M or something, whatever it is that the cool kids are listening to now. 2SM, it was a good Catholic station. To St Mary's, it stands for, stood for. But it was the station. But on Sunday night, they had Father Jim McLaren. Some of you may remember, he's lovely Blake. Anyhow, we were listening to him because it was on our station. And we were all getting angry with him in the car. What the hell would this guy know? You know, blah, blah, blah. So we just said, yeah, I got out of the car and got into a payphone and, right, I'm going to tell this Blake what's going on. I'm going to correct. And, and my friends in the car go, yeah, stuck into him. I was just going to abuse him, really, which would have been so brilliant. But he, he comes on the phone while you're waiting, and he was just so lovely. Uh, in the end, I couldn't do it. So I asked him a question that I had. I said, I said, how can you possibly believe that if you're in love with someone, you shouldn't have sex with them? Surely that's ridiculous. And surely, because we all know about Freud, if you like someone and don't have sex with them, you're probably going to go mad. Right? Repression. So I had this argument with him. Interestingly, he was nice about it, but he did not once, I'd only thought of it this when I became a Christian, he didn't once say, God says, the Bible says, Jesus says, because he's quite clear on adultery and things like that. But when I became a Christian, looking at the Bible, I discovered, yes, the Bible is absolutely crystal clear. You have sexual intercourse with the person you're married to. Any, any other thing, no matter what, is, is just sin. You might think it's a natural sin. You might think it's an understandable sin. It's sin. It's evil. It was years, frankly, after I became a Christian when I could see any sense in what God said. I just knew that he'd said it. I didn't like it. didn't make any sense. All my culture taught me it was wrong. 
But if he says it, he says it. And he never says things just for the fun of it. The other area where I remember being corrected by the Bible very early on, I was absolutely convinced about reincarnation. Back in those days, we all were, if you were cool and educated. And I'd read a book by a guy called Lob Sang Rampa, who was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, but actually he was an Irish bus driver we discovered later on. But he <laughs> certainly seemed like the sort of book a Tibetan monk might write. And um, all sorts of evidences of, about reincarnation. But I just had to face the fact as I read the Bible and read it, he doesn't believe in it. All right, well, if you want to keep believing in reincarnation, you are simply saying, okay, I know more than Jesus does. There was a verse in Ecclesiastes that I could twist and make it sound as if it was, but it was very clear, doesn't it? Believe life, death, judgment, heaven and hell. It just, it's all through the teaching of Jesus, all through the apostles, all through the book of Revelation. You have a choice. God has breathed out this truth in his word. He's breathed it out in his son. Do I let his word have the authority? Or does my massive education and my mass-produced culture be right? I haven't got time to go through, but there's, there's a number of things in our own society which in our own lifetime, Christians have gone from being absolute pilloried for, and now culture's not saying sorry, but they've changed their mind. So, for example, when, when gambling, we began to open gambling, Christians were the only people who opposed it because we're the ones who deal with families torn apart by it. Now... They can see the terrible damage that gambling does to so many families. It's tragic. Pornography was another one. Back in the 70s, sexual liberation was going on. Pornography was perfectly innocent. Adults should be able to do what they like. Now, people are crystal clear, and these are not on the, well, on the radio. You don't hear Christians getting to talk about it. It, what it does to people's wiring, what it does to their sexual expectations, what da the damage it does in relationships, and particularly they're discovering to young women because of what young men are expecting and demanding, because of what they've seen on pornography. Now, again, Christians say, no, 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 what you do with your imagination, you end up doing with your life. There's, and there are a number of areas still, I think, where we are, we'll get hammered for a moment, but if God's word actually says it, though everyone who's anybody in the culture may know it's wrong, in the end it will be shown to be right. God is no fool. His ways are not our ways. This is a wonderfully priceless gift and treasure, as they say at the coronation. Secondly, the Bible is extremely practical. The Bible is not given just for information. It's given for the purpose of transformation. Oh, there's lots of information in it. But the purpose is to transform us in our relationship with God, in our relationship with ourselves and with others. Uh, so listen to what it says. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for. The logic seems to be because it's God breathed, it's useful. Because of its origin and its truth from the God who made you, therefore it's useful. It gives a number of things for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There's a number of very, very practical headings it gives. Earlier on in verse 15, it says this, from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which have power to, which are able to, make you wise for salvation through, through faith in Christ Jesus. You've got two options when it comes to salvation, that is eternity and health, sort of, you know, as a person. The way of the fool and the way of the wise. 
There's a very telling verse in Proverbs 14, which I heard in another context in the last couple of days. In Proverbs 14, there is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Some of you will experience this yourself. You did something because you thought it would add to your life, and now you think, oh, my goodness. A man I know who lives on the street and just steals from all sorts of people close to him says the worst thing that ever happened to him was the day when he won a massive amount of money at the TAB. He thought it was terrific, but he now says that was the end of my life, really, because I got this wonderful win. And he stayed with us a couple of times and stole from us a few times. But he was a mess. There's a way that seems right, but it is the ways of death. And um, let me just see if I can get this picture up for you. Uh, some of you will have seen these up close. These are the instruments that pilots use to fly with. They tell them when they're turning and when they're, what, what the angles are of the plane. I've got no idea what, what each of them does. But I watched a video uh, on some homework from church. Right. Go home, work out how to use YouTube and type in signposts aloft. Okay, signposts aloft. It's from the Moody Bible uh, Science Institute. It's utterly brilliant. It's quite old. The guy's suits are quite cute and the cars are lovely. Um, but it's a brilliant little documentary about instrument flying and the need for pilots to learn not to trust how they feel. Because you can fly perfectly without the instruments when you can see. But as soon as it starts to get dark or clouds, some people lose control of their planes within 30 seconds. Once they, can't, once they don't have an aerial reference, because their inner ear tricks them. They think they can tell when they're turning or what they're doing by the inner ear, but the inner ear without the eyes quickly loses sight. And there's a, quite a chilling audio of this guy who goes into it. He's asking for help from the, from the guys on the ground. And, and uh, in the end, he, you hear him crying out for help as he loses control of the plane and dies. Uh, apart from that, it's fun. Okay? But, um, but it's, it's very, because he's saying it's about faith. What do you trust? Do you trust it? And almost all aeroplanes now have got those instruments. Many people, have, they know how to use them, but they're not instrument-flying pilots. They still trust their feelings. And what you have to learn, and your, you know, the Air Force pilots and all the guys that you pay money to go with planes in, they all fly by the instruments. So they can fly safely through storms, through the night, because they're just looking at the instruments. They are not paying attention to what their body's telling them about where they're going. They have to learn to not trust their feelings, what the body is telling them, but to trust what the instruments say. So they had a number of astronauts on saying things like, it's faith. It's what do you put your faith in? And our question is not just to know, isn't the Bible lovely? Don't I like coming to church and singing songs? But do I trust it? Or do I trust what I feel to be right? To be instrument pilots. Let me show you just very, very briefly what it says the Bible will do for us. First, it'll make you wise for salvation. Rather than being a fool right, and believing what human religion's made up, you'll actually put your trust in Jesus, it says. Um, it'll make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans is on about, wasn't it? Trust him. Right? Don't score good works, etc. Trust him. He'll do it. It'll make you wise in the big questions. Secondly, it will, it's useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, I think the teaching and the training in righteousness come together, and the middle two, rebuking and correcting, live together, but you can join them together differently if you like. 
But it's saying, what will this, what will this book, this God-breathed book do for you if you read it? Right? And it'll teach you. It'll train you. Training, it's a helpful way to think because it's not just going to give you information. Those of us who are semi-academic and those of you who are seriously academic, you get used to, to learning theory, theory, theory. It's fascinating. And there are fascinating ideas in the scriptures. The Trinity, which we're going to get to in a few examples, it's, it's intellectually amazingly satisfying and rich and deep. But it, it, it's not about that. It's about transformation. God wants to train you, to train you in how you think, to train you in how you love, to break bad habits like someone teaching, learning how to play golf. Okay, learning how to play golf. I got mixed up there. Right. <laughs> learning how to play golf. Right? I learned from a friend. I was, I was okay. I plateaued out. I had some lessons. And there were things that I was deliberately trying to do that were absolutely, totally wrong. And it was really hard to unlearn, to be retrained. But that's what God wants to do. He wants to retrain us to be thoroughly, beautifully human. He will teach us about himself. He'll teach us about ourselves. He'll teach you about your future. He'll teach you about your sexuality, teach you how to deal with your enemies, teach you what to do with your money. He will train us. It's wonderful. I don't know how you feel about these next ones, friends. Rebuking and correcting. Do you like it when someone rebukes and corrects you? In your best moments, you do, don't you? The Proverbs speak about the, the, the excellence of the wounds of a friend. I've got, I've got huge debts to people who came and gave me the wounds of a friend. He said, Ian, it's all wrong the way you're thinking. It's all wrong the way you're relating there. And they would rebuke me. Uh, check yourself if when a Christian friend, particularly a friend who you know is pretty serious about the Jesus thing, and isn't just being petty, etc. rebukes you. Um, normally what happens in churches, I've discovered, is if you rebuke someone, they leave the church. Right? Oh, oh. It's okay for me to say at the beginning of the service, you know, I've sinned in thought, word and deed, most justly provoking your wrath and indignation against me. How dare you say I've done something wrong? It's just weird. Right? It's a given that we're doing things wrong and people who love you and care for you and frankly the, the staff of this church are particularly called to do that. Right? It takes more courage than you can imagine to say to a fellow Christian, brother, sister, when you're saying that, doing that, it's actually not helpful or not right. But to be rebuked and then corrected. Right? We need humility, but we'd be fools not to allow God to do that. And we can be thoroughly equipped. The scriptures is all you need. Verse 17, you be thorough, the person of God can be thoroughly equipped. You don't need anything more than God's word. You may well read other books, and there's all sorts of wonderful books and fun books to read. But all you need to be thoroughly equipped to know God, to draw near to God, to pray, to live generously, to live wisely, to live joyfully, is this God-breathed book. You can be thoroughly equipped. The Bible is extremely practical and pragmatic. It's like learning to fly with the instruments. There's a certain amount of theory, but in the end, it's the practicality of learning how to live and to navigate through things well. So what? Thirdly, lastly. Well, look at this picture. Now, I'm not sure what the background to it is, but that kind of reminds me a little bit about how sometimes I think we relate to the Bible. God 
has sent a God-breathed book to you. And it's been rightly said to me, it's a love letter from God. And it's the wise advice from a really experienced father on how to live. It's the maker's instruction on how to make this bit of technology you've paid money to get work properly. But frankly, many of us, even if we say, yes, yes, the Bible, yes, 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 but often we don't bother to open God's mail. Some of us think because we've done a bit of study here and there over the years, we kind of know everything. That is the mark of someone who knows nothing. And I'm not the world's most humble person, and you know that. I'm working on it. I don't want to become the world's most humble, but I'd just like a bit more. But brothers, it's almost every week I'm studying the scriptures for something. Sometimes it's my own Bible, and I think, oh, I'd never, I'd never noticed that. Or I'd never got the link or the connection. Now, I've been a Christian since 1974. What's that? 48 years. 48 years just reading the Bible for myself. About 40 years of teaching the Bible, five years at theological college. I'm appalled at the stuff I keep learning. I keep learning, how, how have I been allowed to be a minister for decades, but I hadn't got that? But I meet Christians, you get the impression, because they've been a Christian for 10 years, they've got a degree in something and they've done some late night course on theology, they think, oh, no, no, I've got it under control. As Paul says, if you think you know, you don't know. Right? There's a depth here. And to keep reading and to keep reading and to keep feeding and opening God's mail and letting him teach you and correct you as he will. You know, some people do say, Ian, you don't understand, I just don't have time. Between work and my hobbies and the course I'm doing so I can make more money uh, and driving the kids here and there and looking after my mother, I, I don't have time. There's about a 99% chance that that's complete baloney. We all have time for what we know is important. You're not bothering to open God's letter to you regularly and feast on it? You're not willing to let him teach and train you? You're not willing to let him rebuke and correct you? Right? It really is a very dangerous thing to do. It's a foolish thing to do. Uh, R.A. Torrey, who's uh, no lightweight in Christian history and Christian thinking, he actually says every Christian who does not study, really study the Bible every day, is a fool. Now, he's a rude man from the UK. I wouldn't say that. But, brothers, if you, if you call yourself Christian, if you're not a Christian, you know, it's a different game. But if you think of yourself as a Christian, but you don't make time to open God's word regularly, you are like someone who's got anorexia. You're just gonna damage yourself. You need the food, but I find in me there's a, there's a weird part of me that is reluctant sometimes to open the Bible. I'll just have a quick look at something else first. Just go and do this, go and make a seventh cup of coffee, and then I'll sit down. There's a strange reluctance that it comes from our flesh to actually open up God's book and read it. We leave his mail, as it were, piled up at the door. And accidentally, friends, we're actually treating God and his word with contempt. We couldn't even bother opening it. I don't think any of us want to do that, but I do think our lives are like that sometimes. I remember when my sister Bronnie um, was announced that she was dying from cancer. I was 
serving at a church on the other side of the harbour. Had, you know, all sorts of things to do. We'd burnt the building down, so we're building, doing that. Uh, children to look after, all sorts of things. I suddenly found time, at least every second day, to drive across Sydney, spend time with her for a couple of months until she died. If you'd said to me, Ian, have you got time? I'd have said, no, no, I'm really, really busy. And I was really, really busy. If you suddenly have a child, you suddenly get time to you know, do all sorts of things to look after the kid. It's just a lie. You have deceived yourself if you say, I'm too busy to seriously read the Bible. You are sinfully disorganised is what you are. And I'm speaking to myself here as well, okay? Right. We've just got to stop lying to ourselves. Is this a God-breathed book or not? You know, are you thoroughly trained in the ways of godliness and love and sacrifice and loving your enemies and all the business of following a Christ, being Christian? I think in the end we've got, to, we've got to... And stop being unhelpful to each other. When some Christian says, oh, I haven't read the Bible you know, in, in, in a couple of weeks so I've only dipped into it here and there and you say, oh, well, you're busy. No, no, you're not helping them. You need to be loving and not be, oh, I'm going to dob you into the rector. He'll, right? Or whatever. But we do need to love and then say, oh, brother, you really need to lift your game here. Um, Psalm 1, do read Psalm 1. It's the doorway into the book of Psalms. Very clearly says the person who lives a, a prosperous life like a healthy tree beside the river is the person who meditates on the word of God day and night, not once a week. Right? We do need to sort of take hold of the gift and say, thank you, God for speaking to me. I'll read, I'll learn. The origin is wonderful. Maybe sing to yourself if you're feeling a bit reluctant to read the Bible. The old kid's song. The best book to read is the Bible. The best book, because it is. And it will speak to you of things like, we sang this a good one the other day. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? These great truths that the simple songs of our children tell us to read ourselves rich, so, but Ian, I have trouble reading the Bible. I'm not quite sure what it always means. Fine. Contact Andrew Vella. Because <laughs> we had a lady it came to this church. She'd been going to churches off and on for years, but she said she'd never been to a church before which taught the Bible. She really enjoyed coming to church. She thought she was learning stuff. But she said her kid who was coming to the kids' ministry could, could sort of interpret the Bible better than she could. She's a very, very clever scientist. And she said, I don't, I don't know what, what to do with it. I'm a bit frightened by the Bible. So Andrew went and just showed her some very simple Bible methods, and it's the sort of ones that we're using in home group, really, in our home groups, life groups. Uh, and she's now in, you know, enjoying reading the scriptures for herself. Well, I could go on and on and on. I'm, I'm tempted to do it, but I won't. Let me finish, friends, with, with, a, with a, just a, a paragraph from um, John Wesley. John Wesley is a man who God used to change the world. Uh, remarkably busy. In fact, some people say he was the first busy man in history. Uh, and he used to walk really fast and all sorts of stuff because he was, he was just in overseeing a whole range of things. Listen to what he says. I think this is the sort of thing which we all could and probably like to be this sort of person and determined to be. He says this, I am a creature of a day, passing through life like an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf until a few moments hence I will be seen no more. I will drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. 
how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came down from heaven and he has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri. Sorry about the bad Latin, which means a man of one book, although he had hundreds of books. But he's saying, let me be homo unius libri. That is folk. Here I am then, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone, but only God is here with me. In his presence, I open it. I read his book. For this end, to find the way to heaven, is there a doubt concerning the meaning of what I read? Does anything appear dark or mysterious? I lift up my heart to the Father of lights. Lord, you have said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, I am asking. You have said, if anyone is willing to do your will, he shall know the truth. I am willing to do your will. Please let me know your will. I then search after and consider parallel passages of the scripture. I meditate upon it with all the attention and earnestness of which my mind is capable. If any doubts still remain, I consult with those who are experienced in the things of God or I read their books. What I thus learn, I live and I teach. So as we look at the creeds, the crucial thing is it draws from the book of God that Jesus believes and the apostles believe and the book says this is the breathed out word from God. Such a privilege, such a treasure, such an opportunity to read this very practical book. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you bless us so much more than we've begun to understand, so much more than we appreciate. You give your only beloved son, then you breathe out this book full of wisdom and beauty and joy and truth and instruction and correction. Forgive our arrogance, Father, that we would rather read other things, uh, rather spend our time doing other things, like anorexic, desperately in need of food and nourishment, yet avoiding it. Help us, Lord, even this week to change in ways that will cause us to feast upon your word, that we may grow more like Jesus. Please help us, Lord, to help each other in becoming a people who feed on your word. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.